the Gilda's maximum lawyers community of legal entrepreneurs who are taking their businesses and lives to the next level. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships, be held accountable, and learn strategies specifically designed to get you unstuck and accelerate your plan for growth. Members are also granted exclusive access to masterminds hosted around the country. Our next event is coming up, and we're heading to Scottsdale, Arizona. There's something truly magical about the power of these in-person connections where real-time breakthroughs happen. Picture this. You're surrounded by like-minded law firm owners tackling your business and mindset challenges together. The energy is electric, the insights are transformative, and the results are game-changing. Investing in yourself is the best decision you'll ever make. The knowledge, strategies, and breakthroughs you'll gain are priceless assets that will supercharge your practice and propel you forward. Join the Guild and secure your ticket to Scottsdale at the best possible price by visiting maxlawevents.com. If, you're, if you have uh, 60 people and you don't have enough work, then you come back to 40 and you have enough work. So that was kind of a barometer for me was when to hire, when not to hire. And I hired when or I let people go until we got to the point we were, were profitable under the circumstances. And it worked out well. Run your law firm the right way. This is the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Your hosts, Jim Hacking and Tyson Mutrix. Let's partner up and maximize your firm. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. I'm Jim Hacking. And I'm Jim Hacking. What? Oh, this is a very special pop-up episode of the podcast for Father's Day. I thought, having had the conference last week with all the success and fun that we had, that I've learned so much from my dad when it comes to business, that I thought he'd be a good guest. So, Dad, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Appreciate all, it. All right. So, Papa, as we call him, is a little bit perplexed as to why we're doing this. But my thought was that um, because I was able to watch him grow an engineering and architectural firm over the years from two employees to – how big did you get? 150. To 150 employees in about four, – four, four cities. Right, in four cities um, in about 20 years? Uh, 30. Yeah, 30 years. So I know that a lot of our listeners spend time thinking about growth and um, how to grow their firm that I thought interviewing my dad would be a good uh, episode, especially for Father's Day. So, Dad, um, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about your history employment-wise and how you ended up at WVP and then you went out on your own? Well, I, uh, I accidentally got into surveying. I uh, had no intention to, but I was working for the police department. I wasn't making any money, so a friend of mine said, why don't you become a surveyor? He said, I'll teach you. I said, okay. So the very first day we go out, my friend's not there, and the owner's there. Ha. And I'm trying to set up for a shot. I have no idea what I'm doing. And so he kind of chuckled about it. He said, okay. So, oh, so I was there about a year and a half, and then they were they were getting, losing work, and so I went to work for another company called Sterling, and I was there for about a year and a half. And that was during the, um, I guess that was about 1970-something, and the housing, housing market was down the tank. And uh, so they had nine crews, and they laid off three, and then they laid off three more, and I was in that one. So I, I lost my job because of the, well, 90% of what we did was housing. 
So then I was lucky enough, uh, a friend of mine, uh, her brother worked for uh, uh, Warren and Van Prague. He was a civil engineer, and he didn't like surveying. He, he, he had to do all the surveying. So I was lucky enough, I got a job there and started out as a, uh, as a surveyor party chief. And then I became, uh, I went to a trade school called ITT. It was for learning how to draft and draw. And uh, so I went there for, mm, I don't know, uh, a year, I think. At night? At night, yeah, after work, yeah, yeah. And then I became in charge of, after about eight or ten years, I was in, I was in charge of all the draftsmen and all the surveyors. And uh, I was, because I told my boss when I turned 30-something, I didn't want to be in the field anymore. So I was lucky and I wasn't. And I, so I did that. And then... Uh, back in 1980, when things were tough and, and uh, we were getting a lot of work in the door, I told my boss that I was going to go out and make some marketing calls. And he said, well, you never, you've never done that before. I said, I know, but I'll, I'm going to do it anyway. He said, okay, it's fine. So I went out. The very first place I went to was a little town called Ellsbury, Missouri. And it was in, uh, that was featured in a thing called... Uh, What's that? What's that uh, 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 newspaper? That's a real rag. Uh, you know, they've got like monsters on top. Oh, of it. like uh, the. Um, I know what you mean. The anyway, so uh, National Enquirer. National Enquirer. Well, what happened? This little town of Ellsbury was on the news because somehow someone had come in and killed about a bunch of cows and cut their lips off. <laughs> and it was in the National Enquirer. And so anyway, so I went there, and they were on the verge of doing a. Um, they were talking about doing a treatment plant because all they had were septic tanks. And so, uh, I, uh, so I went in there and happened to meet the mayor and we hit it off and long story short, we got the job. It was about, the fee was about $300,000, which, and that was back in 19, 1980. So was that 30 years ago? 40. 40. So, you know, $300,000, then now it's probably worth a million, million and a half, two million. Anyway, so that was the start. And I got that, my boss was very impressed. So I said, okay. So then I, so then I became a, a marketer for the firm and uh, brought in a lot of, a lot of work. Uh, I remember, uh, talk, talk about marketing. I've always found that it's, uh, if you get people talking about themselves, you know, people love to talk about themselves. So I had I was calling this guy up in um oh, was the name of the town. Uh, anyway, it was in, it was in um, Upper Missouri, um, and I, so I was I, I called the guy about ten times. He never answered my call. So I was going to Jefferson City, and I stopped by. Uh, I thought I'll stop by and see this guy. So I stopped by, and he was there. And he said, uh, "I said, you know," he said, "You guy, you, you guy keeps calling me." I said, I'm, "That's me." He said, "Okay, I'll give you ten minutes." Well, I walked in his office, and I came out about an hour and a half later, and we were talking. As soon as I walked in the room, I saw grandkids, baseball teams, and golf, and all that kind of stuff. So we started talking, and I don't think we talked business hardly at all. We talked about his grandkids playing baseball and, and him playing golf and stuff. And uh, another big long story short, I got another job, and that was for a water line that they, uh, most people were on wells so this was a, a water plant they were putting in, and that was worth about $300,000 also. Weren't you intimidated to go to people's offices and talk to them about business? And... Not a bit. Really? Not a bit. No, I, I, I kind of like it. I like it. 
And I'm, I'm a pretty good bullshitter anyway, so I, uh, no, I liked it. it. Didn't bother me whatsoever. I mean, I was going. Uh, uh, what happened was there were three marketers in the firm. One had Chicago, one had St. Louis, and I had all the outstate Missouri and 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 the lower half of Illinois. And so they make, they might get a job for an airport project for a million dollars, and I had to fight like hell to get to get enough. You know, I had I had my quota was three hundred fifty thousand dollars for the year, and they got that in one fell swoop. Why well, had to work like hell to get mine, but. No, I enjoyed going to people's, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it a whole lot. It was fun. Well, uh, how, did you, how did you stay organized? With, like, how did you know where to go, who to talk to? Oh, well, I use uh, different methods. Uh, one was there was a thing called uh, uh, the uh, State Register of Engineers. And so I went through there, and in there they had the, the name of the town, who's a district engineer, blah, 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 and where do you go to school, blah, blah, blah. So I knew a little bit. What I, where I wanted to go, and I made a, so whenever I went out of town, I made a, a trip so that I could go out and call people on the way out and go and then call pe- people on the way in. And so I might go out for, uh, you know, for a couple of days or three days, and I'd be calling 25 people. And, uh, and I had a board that showed jobs that uh, I was chasing who the guy, what it was, what it was, what it was worth, and when they were gonna, when they were thinking about starting. So I did that for mm, uh, about eight years, I guess. And uh, in the meantime, my company was, the, the owner went bankrupt and he sold it to five of our employees. And so, um, uh, and the guy that, one of the guys uh, who was real sneaky, he, uh, he, he got a way to get, get the, the firm away from the president, president and so uh, he was a real jerk. Anyway, so he would come. He'd walk by my office. He'd say, three fifty, three fifty, three fifty. I thought, you jack. So then, a good friend of mine, uh, if anybody remembers Jack Buck, the radio announcer, his son-in-law is an African American named David Mason, and I got to know David Mason because Jack Buck Jr. lived right down the street from my family and I. He and I talked about he was going to start a new firm. Uh, he's an architect, started a new firm, and uh, and was thinking about, you know, adding on things on. I said, how about if I join you and bring surveying and down the road engineering? He said, okay, fine. I want you to set the stage for our listeners. So at this point, you had how many kids? You had kids in three Catholic kids, school. Uh, three kids. I was making good money, too. I was making about $49,000 a year, which was pretty damn good, you know, in that time. And I had a, I had a good salary. And so, uh, had you always wanted to be out on your own? Yes. Why? Um, I like, I, I don't know, I just wanted to. I, I thought I was capable of doing it and I wanted to do it. I wanted to have my own show. A friend of mine, David Mason, uh, he and I talked several times. He said, I'm going to start a new business. And so, uh, we decided to get together and do it. And so, we started the company in a room about 10 by 10. And, um, uh, we lived off, I, I had bought, I had owned, I owned some shares of stock for my old firm and I got that, that was $8,000 when I sold my stock. And then my wife was teaching, she made, uh, I think eight or $9,000 a year. And so she kept us going as far as paying the rent and groceries and what have you, plus the money that I had set aside. Cause my partner and I 
didn't uh, get a we didn't get a paycheck for a whole year. And it was kind of scary. So, but eventually we did, and we started hiring employees. And uh, the game changes when you hire employees because then you got to worry about you know benefit package and paying taxes and all that kind of stuff. So it's a little different than being uh, just you and your partner. So real quick. Talk to me about the conversation you had with mom about going out on your own. Well, I just, we had talked about it. I told her what I wanted to do, and uh, and she said, okay. She said, you know, it's finally, if you feel confident, I said, you feel confident. She said, well, good, let's do it. So so she jumped on board right away, and she said, I have all the faith in the world in you. So as it worked out, it was fine. Uh, we started making money about a year later, and then we grooved it. Three people, and then five, and seven, and ten. All right, now I want to talk about that year. Tell me, talk to the listeners about the first year when you weren't having any money in the door. Like your first day at work with David, what did you do? What did what did you start working on jobs? Did you start looking for jobs? What did you do? First, uh, when, I, when I came over, I had been doing work for Southwestern Bell, and they have a lot of substations, and I was serving them and laying them out, and uh, and so that so that brought in some money in the door. Not a lot, but a little. And then, uh, I, so I did quite a few of those, which kept me busy. I had uh, I had a part-time guy working for me, helped me survey it. And then the, the, I was found, found the paper, and there was an added paper for a project. It was uh, the Pear Road, which is right near where we live, and it was for uh, to re-engineer it. And so um, I sent in our credentials to a company called Barra, and they hired us. Well, then I went around and I hired a guy that I had worked with at WEP. I hired him to do all the engineering. I did the serving, he did engineering. And he, I said, you know, when you do that, save a little room for me on top that can make some profit. So he did, it worked out well. And we got that job and kind of on our way. And then, um, you know, after that, uh, I ended up uh, hiring one of the guys that I worked with at WEP was uh, just a really, really good guy. His name was Jim Miller, and he uh, he was sa- he was really savvy. He was a good surveyor, but he just he was a people person. So he said when I left, he said when you get going, he said give me a give me a call. I want to go with you. I said okay. So I called him on the phone. And I said I'm ready for you. He said well, because uh, I had started something years ago back in the, when uh, uh, President um, who's the guy from Georgia Carter. Yeah, President Carter said we got to keep our Quit you know, using our gas. We've got to be more more careful about our gas. And and so uh, I went to my boss then and said, "How about we take off every other Friday, which will save gasoline, and what have you?" And he said, "Well, that's a good idea." So we got every Friday off. Every other Friday. Every other Friday. So then uh, Jim Milner uh, came to work for me, and he said, "I'll come, but I got to have that Friday off." <laughs> he loves playing golf. So we said, "Okay." So we did. So we set it up for our new firm, and it was uh, everybody loved it. It's and it cut that on, on the absenteeism because people could use that day to take their kids to the dentist or pay, go get a loan for their house or whatever it was. It worked out very well. And So so just to be clear, so every other Friday, you, your employees would all work an extra hour during the week. We worked, the first week we, we worked 7.30 to 5.30, which is nine hours. Okay, so that's an extra four. Okay. And then, uh, and then we worked... Uh, I'm trying to think how it was. I mean, it wasn't four. Anyway, we worked. Then we worked the next week, and uh, we took off. Uh, we worked uh, on Friday a half a day. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So it was another four hours. And the following week, we, were, we had extra eight hours, and um, 
Um, and so that, that's how it worked. And, and we had a little trouble with the federal government because they said they, we should be paying, be paying overtime. Well, we proved to them that our, our, uh, our time, our, uh, putting our downtime was our week started on uh, Monday afternoon at 1 o'clock and went through the following two weeks and ended up the same way. So uh, we, got, we got past that hurdle. And then, uh, what? So let me talk about that first year when you were out on your own with David. Just one more question. Were there times where you thought that it might not work? Oh, all the time. I was, I was, I was sick to my stomach. I would worry about getting getting work in the door, and you know, it's all about getting work in the door. And uh, yeah, I, I met a lot of sleepless nights, wondering where the money was going to come from, where our where our, our cash flow was going to come from, and and so luckily, uh, you know, I I prayed a lot and. And every time it, uh, I had a need, I got it. Uh, I mean, there are people like one guy we did a job for. I'll never, I'll never forget him. And this was right around Christmas time. We didn't, uh, I didn't think we were going to be able to make payroll. And so we were doing a job for uh, a firm called Burns and Mac. And uh, the the job was $80,000, which was huge for us. And uh, so I said, can you send me some so I can pay my employees? And so the guy showed up at my door uh, the next day and had a, had a check for $80,000, which is really cool. He was really good. He, he became a really, really good friend of mine, and we ended up doing a lot of work for Burns and Mac. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, what else I'm trying to think. Uh, so how about growth? So t- what was your mindset? Like, how would you know when to grow? How did you... I, I remember that you often would say to me that the engineers who bill by the hour make you money and that the architects sort of spend your money. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, not so much that. They were just, the engineers would, uh, with their mindset, they would come into work at 7.30 and at 5.30 they were gone. And the architects, we only had three or four architects, they would come rounding in around 8 o'clock and then they'd stay at 8 o'clock that night. And so they all they did the same thing, although the engineers made a lot more money than the architects. Uh, they were just, you know, architects are kind of dreamers and they tend to over over uh, design and they want to change that and change this so it costs money it's it's, uh, it's uh, you know your personnel it's cost money to do that anyway slowly over the years we weaned ourselves off of architecture we uh, we got mainly into into uh, I remember there's one job we got with Anheuser-Busch and David and I uh, belonged to a golf club. Well, we had we did the what we did was we bartered for it. We uh, we wanted to join this golf club, and David said, "You know, we can't afford this eighteen thousand dollars each." So I said, "Well, that, let's see if they have a survey engineering done." And so we called them on the phone. And he said, "No," and we said, "He said, come on out." So we went out and gave him a dog and pony show. And so we the deal was we would work uh, uh, until we reached thirty six thousand dollars. Which covered the uh, the amount for the, to join the club, and then anything over that we got paid. So we ended up making one hundred thirty five thousand, I think, altogether. And so that was uh, that was how we got our uh, golf course done. We designed the, the pathways and all that kind of stuff. So whatever went along with that. And remember one job we were doing. I got I got by track uh, side track there. Uh, and some push. We were. Um, uh, David's father-in-law uh, was pretty well involved in Hazard Bush because he was an announcer for the Cardinals. Well, so he said we were able to get a meeting set up with these two vice presidents, 
And so David and I went out to play golf and took them out to play golf. It's a beautiful golf course, so the people love it. So we got to the about the tenth hole, and the guy turned to me and he said, "Are we going to talk about business?" And I said, "Mm mm, no." I said, "We don't talk about business when we're having fun." And I said, "He said, well, call me on Monday. I'll, I'll do, have you come down." So I called him on Monday, had him come down. The next day, he gave us a forty thousand dollars job. So I realized that it was, you know, you don't push people; you just kind of nudge them a little bit. And so it, it turned out where, you know, we got a nice job. And then we ended up doing a lot of jobs for Anheuser Busch uh, in the future, and um, just continued to grow. You know, but how did you know when to grow? One of the things I struggle with is, you know, everybody seems very busy, and then they get busier, and then the stress levels rise and that's sort of my benchmark. I'm sure there are more scientific ways to it and I'm sure you I don't I don't think I mean my 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 uh what I did was was that we would work and uh if we we, we then we were overtime and David and I were big we weren't very big on overtime but we would work overtime and so we got to a point where okay we can afford another guy now. So we hired another guy and then the next one another guy and then another guy. Or or gal. Or gal, or gal, yeah, we uh, yeah we had uh, three or four uh, female uh, architects. Uh, a lot of women don't go into engineering, but we had some. A couple joined, um, and so we just we grew, and then we had a um, uh, we rented we rented space from a guy uh, who uh, had a garage in the back, and we had all we fixed it all up. We had about maybe fifteen people, twenty people. And so then we were getting too big, so we decided to buy a building, and so we were also we we got got uh, we we're, we're going to move in. The day we were moving in, a guy walks up to me and says, "Here's a subpoena. Send your rent to Southwest Southside Bank." I said, "What?" And I said, "Send your, your your rent to Southside Bank. We're we're foreclosing on this guy." Well, my partner and I kicked around for a while, and he said, "Let's buy the building." So we ended up buying the building, paid uh, I think three hundred fifty thousand dollars for it. And um, uh, and so that was that was our growth. I mean, we had twenty six thousand square feet, and uh, that was more than enough. So right now we have one hundred and fifty people, but you know, like twenty five of those are in Chicago, twenty of those are in Philadelphia, and the rest are in St. Louis. So the building worked out very well for us. We've been we bought a building in Chicago too, where we work. So um, I can attest from personal experience that you are a tough bill collector. I remember when I was in college, you loaned me $500 and you called every Friday checking out to see where your money was. Talk to the listeners a little bit about, I know you have a lot of times where you're dealing with government bureaucracies and you're trying to chase down, like you said, that $80,000 from that one firm. How's your approach to that? Well, as far as the federal government, there's not a whole lot you can do. They're going to pay you at their own pace. I mean, we, we nudge them and ask them, and by and large, the federal government, they were okay. Okay, we found out later on that Anheuser-Busch, when they kind of tightened their, tighten their ropes or their belt buckle, we, uh, they were getting slow on paying, and I, uh, was, we didn't like it. It was hard, it was hard to get by. There's the one guy uh, in my, uh, who was my ex-boss at WVP, the guy I said was a jerk, he... Uh, he hired us to do some surveying for him on a job for a metropolitan sewer district. And so we did it. And it got to be a couple of months we hadn't been paid. It was like $9,000. And $9,000 to us was a lot of money. And uh, so uh, he, kept, he kept stalling, stalling. And so I called him Mr. Metropolitan Sewer District and said, 
you know, uh, when are you going to pay WP so I can get paid? He said, oh, we paid them two months ago. So I called the guy up on the phone, and my ex-boss, I said, listen, you son of a bitch. I know you got paid. You know you got paid. I want my money. If I don't get it by Thursday, I'm going to come in. I'm going to kick your ass. And I got, and I got a check the next day. <laughs> All right. All right, good. So now... One of the things I know, too, that was great for you was the growth into other cities. How did you uh, manage that? I'm, I'm going up tomorrow to Chicago to look for office space for myself. So what, what were you thinking when you guys decided to grow, and how did you manage it? We did a, uh, we did a job for, uh, for the Illinois Department of Transportation. It was a surveying job, a big, big job. Well, the guy that, and we, we, were, we were a minority firm, and uh, David had the majority of stock. And so the guy who ran Illinois DOT said, you guys got to go to Chicago. There's plenty of work up there. So my partner and I talked about it. I said, okay, I'll take, go up and see. So I went up, and there were very few. There, were, there was only one other minority firm that did civil engineering, and no other uh, minorities that did structural engineering. So we decided to, you know, try it out. So... For a year, or maybe a year and a half, I would go up uh, once a month. I would go up uh, on Monday, and I'd get there, uh, I may get there Sunday night, and I would start marketing. And I'm talk- when I say market, I'm talking about lunch, dinner, and sometimes drinks afterwards. And I would see, I set it up so I could uh, see the maximum people. I saw one an hour. And so I ended up calling on 30 people a week. And which was really, really difficult, but it worked out, and I, uh, I was able to pull it off. And so I did that. I did that trip once a, uh, a month for about a year, year and a half. And I was getting tired of going by myself, so I used to take my wife along, and she would shop in Chicago and mess around, had fun. And uh, so it, it started with uh, we got one job, then we got another, and got another. And then uh, after about a year and a half, we had about maybe eight good clients that used us, and which was enough to pay the bills. And so my partner and I bought the building in Chicago. And then it grew and it grew more, and now we're up to about 25 people. And then In Chicago? In Chicago. And then we started, uh, someone said that the market was good in Philadelphia for a firm like ours. So we went up and started marketing up there, and uh, ended up opening an office, and now there's about 20 people there. Um, and that was, uh, so as far as marketing goes, if you sit on your ass, you're not gonna get in. You gotta go out there and talk to people, and shake some cages, and just uh, be on top of things, and make sure that uh, you're getting, you know, you're able to get work from them. And, uh, but it doesn't, doesn't help sitting around. You gotta get off your ass and go out and do it. And uh, I did it, I mean, that was, that was a lot, 30 people in a, in a week, so, but it worked out. Why do you think you were so good at that? Because I'm full of bullshit. All right, so one of the things I remember a conversation when I started talking to you about my, my firm opening up an office in Chicago, one of the things I mentioned to you was that I was worried, you know, what happens if you open up a firm office, a satellite office, and then the people running it decide to sort of go out on their own and, and take, um, take the clients. Do you remember what you said to me? No, what did I say? You said, Jimmy, that's never going to happen. They're not built like us. Do you remember that? They're not what? Built like us. Like, they don't think that way. That so many people think of just getting a paycheck and... True, true. Yeah, and especially engineers in particular are very stodgy people, and they, they, um, they, um, 
they're not, they're by and large, they're not entrepreneurs. They just want to sit at a table and draw their ridges and their roads and that kind of thing. They're, they're totally happy with that. And architects are a little more entrepreneurial, but not that much. So I wasn't worried about people going off uh, on the side for me. Um, uh, I, uh, you know, we, I, I wasn't worried about it. I mean, we just, we, we kept them happy. We had a good, we had a good benefit package, good insurance, a good 401k. And so people are happy to work with us. So you recently started winding down things with the firm and your own participation. Um, did you ever step back and say to yourself, holy cow, look at what we built? I, yeah, I did. I, yeah, I mean, once you, once, you, once you do that, you kind of go, oh, look where we are. And uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, and, and it was, uh, uh, it was a little scary. And, uh, but uh, I'm proud of what we did, my partner and I. And so, and then uh, we, so we don't end up hiring Davis' two sons. They're, they're not engineers. And uh, if you're going to do engineering work in, in any state, you have to have a chief engineer. So we had a guy that was with us for 30 years, so he became our chief engineer. And as far as the architect, David was an architect, so that, that wasn't any problem. So both of the boys work for now, and they're, they have business degrees. So hoping that uh, that, that, can, uh, that they prove to be successful. I, I quit when I was 77. I started selling newspapers when I was eight years old. So I worked for 70 years, and uh, that was a little, it was a little scary retiring. I didn't know what I was going to do. But now that I've been doing this for a year and a half, I love it. That's a great note to end on. I, I do want to ask you one other question that occurred to me, as I, as again, as I'm looking at growth. Were there times where you thought you either grew too fast or that you worried that, was it like, a, was there, were there any dips where you sort of had to cut back and, and got worried about too much growth. 1980, that was a bad time. That was a recession. Uh, and so we... Uh, well, that was before David. 1980? No, I'm, I'm sorry, not, not, not 1980. 1980, 1999 or 98, one of the two. And it was a bad time for engineers. And, uh, and I, we had to lay some people off. Uh, just to have the work come in the door. We, so we just skinnied up. And uh, you, you can do that. I mean, if you're, if you're, if you have uh, sixty people and you don't have enough work, well, then you come back to forty, and you have enough work. So that was kind of a barometer for me: was when to hire, when not to hire. And I hired when, or I let people go, until we got to the point we were, where we were profitable, under the circumstances, and it worked out well. It just uh, you just gotta watch your. Uh, because uh, I, I did most of the hiring and firing in the firm, and um, uh, but you just got to be, you got to balance the two, which is a little difficult, but uh, it worked out well. Uh, we just, um, we let, let people go until we got to the point where we're, where we're, we're on the plus side then, and uh, that was a rough year. We, I think we, we lost, uh, I think, $80,000, which is a lot of money for us, and uh, so, but we were lucky enough that we held, we held in there, and we started coming back, and uh, we, we um, so we were able to hang on and get through that that time. So that's doing time. But you better stop worrying about it. one. You worry about okay, I don't have enough money to pay my people. And the other side is I don't have enough work to to to, to keep the clients. I don't have enough work to do what I have to do. So you're constantly trying to juggle and worry about enough money to pay people versus 
too, too many people working for you, or not enough people working for you. So there's always that that as you're, as an owner, you're you're um, you're constantly trying to balance those two issues. All right. So you don't know this because you haven't heard the podcast before. But at the end of every episode, we ask our guests to give a hack of the week. A hat of the week. A hack, a hack, like a life hack or advice. I'm going to ask you yours in a minute. So for me, listening to you, the, the one thing that occurs to me is the word proximity. I mean, you went to Chicago to meet with people. You went out on the road to, you know, chase business. And, you know, right now everybody thinks that everything should be done digitally. And I just think that there's no substitute, like you said, for proximity. So for me, going up to Chicago, I need to go meet the mosque leaders and meet everybody who's the the shakers and the movers and shakers in Chicago. So, so my hack for the listeners is, is don't forget about proximity. Don't forget about finding the people who know where the business is. For me, I spend a lot of time with international student advisors because they know a lot of immigrants who are eventually going to need immigration help. It's sort of more of a long play, but there's just no substitute for proximity. So for you, what would be, so a lot of our listeners are sort of where you and David were in 1990 when you went out on your own. What what should, and you know, most of these kids were born, most of these attorneys were born after that or around that time. So what advice would you have for someone now going out on their own and, and hoping to build something as big as you did? Well, I think that you just said about contacting people is, is the big thing. What I did was there's a, uh, a booklet for Missouri, Illinois, with all the engineers in it, and so I went through and made a made a list of those I thought that would that would want to would want to work with us, and plus I talked to people in Chicago. I, I used about four or five different ways to contact people, and uh, and so uh, it was just again, you know, like when we first started, we 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 rented a place. Oh, I think it was like incubator building. Yep. And we had one. We had one person there. Then we had two, and then we only had to get three. We decided to get our own place, so we did. And what happens is, is that when you talk to people, talk to Joe at, at Company A, he said, "Well, you got to go see Ken at Company B." So a lot of that we got through word of mouth, and a lot of it people told us who to see and where to go and use their name. So, you know, uh, that's like a satisfied customer. And they uh, they liked what we did. They liked our work, and so we would then call on people that they knew for us, and it, it worked out very well. Awesome, Dad. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love, love you. Thanks for listening to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. The Maximum Lawyer Podcast. To stay in contact with your host and to access more content, more content. go to maximumlawyer.com. Maximumlawyer.com. Have a great week and catch you next time.